Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to J3 Podcast. I'm your host, John Jewett. With me, co-host Luke Miller. And today, we are talking insulin therapy as a prophylactic strategy, but not only prophylactic, but also how we would deploy it as an optimizing agent for your off season or your prep question mark. <laughs> and, uh, we'll leave, we'll leave that like, some questions. Uh, in there. Cause that just came to mind now. Cause before we jumped on, we we're like talking about questions that pop up that I actually had someone ask about that. Um, yeah. how, how would you deploy insulin in a fat loss phase? I'm like, Oh, this sounds really like counterintuitive. So we will bring, we can bring that up. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Um, I think a good place to start is just kind of mapping out insulin's function, like how, like where, where are we getting it from? So that we kind of have a basic understanding of the physiology um, and just uh, the role of the pancreas and response to blood glucose in the blood and, and via beta cells and go from there. Cool. Yeah. So the um, main aspect, well, at least insulin is, management of blood glucose levels and your pancreas contains beta cells where insulin is produced. And yep. so we have a constant flux of glucose elevations and glucose lowering. The counter hormone to insulin is glucagon, which is also produced by the pancreas from the alpha cells. And that will bring blood glucose up. So this is how we have this constant management of blood glucose based around our our needs and that's under normal function you have a baseline of insulin that's always present this is our basal level so it's never devoid of insulin you're never devoid of glucagon there's always some levels that are being present they're just moving around based on what we need to do with managing blood glucose uh, yep. glucose is not the only thing that's an insulinogenic uh, amino acids are as well. So some amino acids will trigger some insulin response. Um, fats, not really. <laughs> so prim primarily when you do talk about insulin, it is heavily focused around uh, carbo carbohydrate. Yep. Now, this is under like normal physiology conditions before we get into talking about like a, a diabetic or someone with some type of metabolic syndrome. You know, we have this basal level, you have a meal present, this meal causes that rise of blood glucose, and blood amino acids, and then we have a, uh, in turn, a rise in blood insulin levels to help with uptake of all, all this carbohydrate amount, blood glucose, amino acids into, into tissues. Yep. So then what happens when you keep having these high levels of serum insulin levels or blood glucose? We have conditions that arise. Now, did I did I clearly explain like the role of the pancreas and glucose or yeah, no, I think that's a pretty fair, fair kind of a starting point. Cause I think that kind of starts the role of like just understanding the management piece and like kind of diving into where we do see resistance over time, especially with body composition starting to go in the wrong direction, food getting to a really high point, things along those lines where we're not getting that same management throughout. Um, and this is where we'll start to introduce the thought process of the, what insulin are we going to be using? Maybe probably talk about the four classes, the main classes, 
um, and then go from there. Probably start with what we're primarily using as a prophylactic to start for us, especially since it's like the prophylactic series. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot more physiology mechanisms that occur around blood glucose management and, and, and other like hormones that are can be produced or amino acids that are even produced in, in managing. That's why you have we have a lot of diabetic agents that work in different pathways yep. like GLP-1, um, sulfurenols. And if you didn't see the prophylactic on metformin, we cover a lot of those other diabetic drugs and those pathways that they work between. But I, for this context, I, I don't want to go too far in depth beyond that management. So you have that understanding. Yep. Um, now, so what really leads to this dysfunction in insulin sensitivity, where we have this rise in insulin resistance, and there's some um, can be an idiopathic genetic component to it. Uh, but a lot of times what we see is this, it could likely be a background of inflammation that's really driving a lot of the issues. And this inflammatory process can be leading to more insulin resistance, affecting the amount of insulin receptors around tissues. The Once the even insulin is binding, that pathway to gene transcription. And so this, this inflammation is probably this root condition that's, that's the issue and a root condition to a lot of our other problems that we encounter with cardiovascular disease um, and, and being one being diabetes. And so this causes this high amount of constant insulin when insulin is no longer being taken up and, and, and working at active sites on tissues, constant exposure, high levels of insulin cause even further insulin resistance, cause the beta cells to have to put out more insulin, which is this, this compounding effect that occurs and you see rises in blood glucose. So a lot of times when you're already seeing this a blood glucose, which normal would be less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, starts rising above that, you're likely probably already had some high serum insulin levels in the background. So if you're not checking like a fasting serum insulin level, uh, then you wouldn't really know. Um, so you might have your labs pulled and you said, oh, I have a normal blood glucose, um, normal A1C, but you might already having some rise in fasting serum insulin. So we could pull a ins serum insulin, a fasting blood glucose, and you could get a HOMA IR, which tests your insulin resistance. And you can score that way. So you really want a, a, a normal insulin level and a normal serum blood glucose. But if we're seeing blood glucose rise, it may be that you already have a higher serum insulin, might, maybe not. Um, but usually that's where I see it. It's usually insulin's coming up high in labs and sometimes glucose is not high. That's typically what, what I see. And problems around this is that you do that transition can change carbohydrate and lipid metabolism at the liver and cause a greater transition of body fat gain into visceral adipose tissue opposed to subcutaneous adipose tissue. And with that transition, that type of tissue produces a lot of, a lot of adipokines that are inflammatory. So you have more inflammation that occurs. And so this can come from um, primarily around the PED user. How do, how do you induce this state where you have dyslipidemia, increase in visceral adipose tissue and insulin resistance, this kind of trifecta, which is metabolic syndrome. So this is opposing risk that we have as PED users. And it's from prolonged calorie surpluses, 
you know, elevated use of steroids, growth hormone, and then elevated body fat. Um, yep. And and through those those big picture things is how you're seeing these mechanisms within the body start changing to where we see insulin resistance um, occurring with constant demand on beta cells. You could maybe see beta cell decline. You see it in type two diabetics. And I know that's the critique is we don't really have that data in, in bodybuilders that show it just, and likely we might not. So we have to look at disease states that kind of resemble what you might see in someone that's pushing an enhanced um, profile. And so within that, you have some beta cell decline potentially, or just more demand on them. Um, then there's lots of organ damage that occur through the gluco and lipotoxicity of just high elevated triglycerides and blood glucose. This is exactly what you see when you have like an elevated A1C, like A1C is your red blood cells with a glycation aspect to them. So there's glucose binding to these red blood cells. You, you, that's what you're looking at, like glycated hemoglobin. Um, and then like subjectively, what might you feel? Like usually guys are like, you can have a decrease in hunger. You just feel at some point when you're like stuffing food down, uh, pumps in the gym just aren't that great anymore. And probably like you're starting to really notice more body fat gain or waste is really increasing, but you're not getting this, the same progress with roundness, fullness and, and progression performance wise. That was yeah. a lot of rambling on. I went through no. a lot of stuff. <laughs> I just, just to pull out one piece, right? Like I think even though we may not have the data of like the, the beta cell decline in function within bodybuilders, right? We can start to look at the, the research and some of the papers within like the diabetic populations to kind of start to inform uh, decision-making, right? It's kind of like that ability to laterally think, right? It's, it's, it's a yes. product of the situation that we're in. So we have to laterally think in, in comparison, right? And for those of you guys that read the newsletter I wrote on, on insulin, the paper in there is a really good paper that does show improvements um, overall from like an early deployment of insulin within that type two diabetes population um, and improving overall beta cell function, right? And so when we look at managing this over the long term and we consider insulin a prophylactic, we need to maybe start to look at papers like this that show even in the early onset of diabetes for these individuals, we see an improvement in variables and, and, and overall function with this insulin deployment. Yeah. If, like I, I have the, the paper, I pulled it up. Just it's the clinical evidence for the early, earlier initiation of insulin therapy in type two diabetics. That was by Owen since in 2013. So if yeah. through that paper, you can pull out a lot of other studies reviewing these concepts and why early initiation therapy in diabetics is of, of benefit and um, why you, we could kind of get into the idea of why you might want to be implementing early on within bodybuilding, since we're posing a lot of the same risks. And, you know, a lot of times I uh, initially I changed some of my thoughts on this because I really would utilize Lantus once I saw blood glucose was starting to trend upward. But yeah. like I said previously, like once blood glucose is already elevated, likely you already have a pretty high insulin demand. And so early on in an off-season phase might make a lot of sense. And within these, now these are type two diabetics, of course, that we look at some of this data from, but when they do have early initiation of a 
basal insulin. And we'll, we'll talk about like what that even means in a, in a second. But when you had, do have this early initiation, there's um, anti-inflammatory benefits, uh, antioxidant benefits that, that are present, which just alone, just PED use in general promotes a lot of inflammation and increase in reactive oxygen species. Uh, um, this, this decreases those ROS and it can increase nitric oxide in the endothelial cells. So you have a, a keeps blood vessel elasticity, which uh, is also why when you take insulin, like before you train and guys get a bigger pump, that's kind of the rationale behind it. That's not the rationale why I would use insulin, but uh, just to kind of connect some dots for you. Yeah. And I mean, with, within that too, like you have the improvement of glucose control and just that alone, when I have the implemented, a lot of guys notice like hunger signaling improves and there's an improvement in energy as, as well, just as a baseline, like throughout out the day. And then through that deployment too, you, you could have this maybe pre preservation of beta cell function. Um, within that paper, they talked about metabolic memory and basically it's um, keeping this level of meta metabolic function of these beta cells. So when you were to stop insulin therapy, like you, you were able to um, compensate on your own for your blood glucose a lot more efficiently than if you were to never use this insulin therapy to begin with. Yep. And I think that's this like case in point of like making sure that we're being proactive. It's kind of like this whole point of this prophylactic series, right? Um, and I think that we can maybe start to lay out the four different classes real quick so people can kind of have an understanding of what we're saying, like basal insulins, which ones we're, we're mainly talking about. Yeah. Um, and so this, a, a basal insulin. So I talked about how you have this baseline of insulin that's always present. And that's what we're talking about when you're using a basal insulin is that is the coverage level for what you'd be producing at this this baseline. And just to have an idea to give you some reference, and everyone's going to be a little bit different for what they produce, but uh, for a total daily insulin amount, someone might produce normally 50 to 70 units of, of insulin. And now this is a, probably a normal person. Now in, within a, a bodybuilder pushing high amounts of food, high body weight, I mean, you could definitely far exceed that. So the insulin demand that you're putting on your body is, is really high. But a basal insulin would be used to replace this basal level. Um, and it's not the idea of it as a prophylactic is not replacing all of it. It's just, it just some of it. Um, and so we, the main one that we'll have a lot of action to is, is Lantus, which is insulin glargan. Yep. And it's yep. uh, long acting. It has about, um, an, I think it's onset of around one to two hours. And then it's action time is around 24 hours with coverage for the full day. And it doesn't leave really any peaks or troughs. So some insulin that are faster acting could spike insulin levels up higher. And that's more so for mealtime coverage. Well, this one's nice because the risk of hypoglycemia is, is very, very low. Yeah. Um, there's been individuals try to like commit suicide with Lantus and they take like three full pins of Lantus and, and they don't die. Not saying to do that. But what I am saying is that, you know, a, a starting initial replacement of some of your basal insulin is extremely low risk. So some, yeah. some diabetics are taking this prior to bedtime and, or they split in the dose AM and PM 
and the risk of hypoglycemia is extremely low. Yep. And I think even in that same class, we can consider Levomir as a as an option as well, which would be insulin insulin detamir. I can't say the 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 second word, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any doctors, if they listen, please, uh, pharmacists, please, yeah, please uh, spare <laughs> us. But uh, Levomir being a good option here too, right? Depending on what you're able to get your hands on. Do you re- do you recall in Levomir the duration of action? Yeah, I think that one might be the sixteen to eighteen. Yeah, I think it's around sixteen to eighteen. If I remember, I'm not. Not off the top of my head, no. Uh, and I guess like the other, some people bring up Atlantis, like it does have a little bit higher um, binding affinity to the IGF-1 receptor. Yeah. So, um, you know, a, a lot so a lot of these, these hormones can and, uh, bind to other receptor sites, which IGF, um, Atlantis is like a seven times higher binding affinity than normal, uh, the insulin that you're going to produce. However, you need context within that, like normal IGF-1 binding capacity to the IGF-1 receptor, it's like a (laughs) hundredfold. So the amount that you're going to get out of Lantus binding to the IGF-1 receptor, it's it's like a a fact about it, but it's nothing that I would say is going to be advantageous. Like you're going to grow so much more having this Lantus in place. Yeah, for sure. Um, Initiation, like with Lantus for diabetics is typically uh, around 0.2 IUs per kilogram of body weight. So this would be if you're a 100 kilogram bodybuilder, 220 pound bodybuilder, uh, 20 units is a starting point for a diabetic, someone that with compromised um, blood glucose management. So I am more conservative in saying, hey, 50% 50% of that would be a starting point for someone that has good glucose control. <laughs> I'm lose yeah. my ability to say glucose. <laughs> um, so like 0.1 IU per um, kilogram of body weight. So usually a starting point is around 10 units, which is very conservative and would potentially pose pretty low risk. Um, and this is a prophylactic being utilized. Uh, so, you know, with, how high would you go with this? I think that's the, the question realizes is that if you're getting to a point where glucose management is so poor, then you need to address other areas. I, I think we should, before I kill, go, go down too far that we should probably cover the other insulins too. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so yeah. Yeah. The other, how long can you do this insulin for and how much we'll get, get to that point, but. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, the other three classes are, are fairly quick because we'll kind of probably touch on, the back end here, like the deployment of these, but you'll have fast acting, which is typically going to be your shortest is either your, like your humologs or your novologs, everything along those lines. Um, we're looking at working within around 15 minutes ish after injection, peaking within one to two hours. Short acting would be uh, kind of like your Novlin R's, um, which would be uh, 30 minutes after injection about working and peaking within that two to three hour frame. Um, and then intermediate would be the last one before long acting, um, which is going to start working around two to four hours after injection and peaking around four to six. So you're looking at something like an NPH. So yeah. um, those yeah, are going to be, go ahead. No, yeah, no, you weren't done. I'm just jumping in. just chatting. Yeah. So those are going to be like your main classes. And like, you know, commonly you hear like with insulin, you hear the humologs, you hear the novologs with people using it around training. 
which is, is there is a case for deployment there. And, and, and I think it should be covered here. But when we talk about prophylactic, right, mainly we're going to be discussing the basils. However, the rapids will have uses in, in some of these like higher caloric states in, in order to cover some of these large influxes of nutrients, especially around training. Yeah, I mean, uh, with, with regard to like bodybuilding, like looking at other coverage aspects and how often that we do eat five to six meals per day, uh, you're kind of having to cater that around, that's your needs, right? So you have to cater what type of insulin fits around that. And there's a basal amount that should be there present, but also for meal timing and how frequently that we eat, something fast acting would make sense around meals, just like it does in diabetics. Some of the other insulins just have a really profile that just doesn't match well. Um, like Humulin, Novalin R has it onset, I think it's like within 20 to 30 meat. 30 minutes and the peak action is one to three hours, but it can last for like five to eight hours. So it's just, just a weird timeline considering like when you eat and how much coverage you have, then the peaks and troughs might be hitting at times when food levels could be getting low in the bloodstream. Um, so it's just, it's really not ideal. I know like in the U S access for Humulin, Novolin R, Humulin, Novolin N, uh, you can get them over the counter without scripts, uh, but it's just pretty far from ideal uh, with, from the at the duration of action standpoint. Yeah. So the, the risk for the, so the risk with those of hyper uh, hypoglycemia, I think is much higher. High. Much higher. And like, this is where when you hear us talk about like the acute risk being the highest insulin is like going to that hypoglycemic, right? So, which is where having an understanding of like, how long are these going to be staying and in are really important, which is where we're probably leaning more towards like the human logs and Nova logs when we're using fast, faster acting insulins in order for meal coverage. Yeah. And so that's kind of, that's the layout of, of like our insulin deployment. So typically you're going to be looking at Atlantis as a primary strategy. Then if there is a meal that could be very high, uh, you know, that could be something like a Humalog or Novalog. Um, now, within like, I think it gets to timelines now, like when when to do this. Um, yeah, for sure. Because we kind of laid out the why behind it. I think knowing the whys behind it is going to give insight to the wins. Um, yeah. Because when you're imposing the most stress and blood glucose is the highest, it's going to be moving into an, an off-season phase, right? Yeah. So kind of like, kind of like John said before, like, as we're going in the off season, not allowing yourself to wait to where blood glucose is too high, I think is very valuable. So like typically when we consider too high, probably above a hundred is the conversation we're having. Um, and I'm probably trying to be a little bit more pro more proactive than that. Once I see it's starting to elevate from where their normal baseline is, which is why the data tracking portion is important. Yeah. This is what I monitor it, right? Fasting. Yeah. Glucose. Yeah. Just monitoring fasted blood glucose. That's when I'm going to start introducing and weaving this into the plan before it becomes a problem. Right. And that's kind of where with the basils, like this would be like a Lantus deployment. Probably the initial deployment is always going to be Lantus in my opinion. Yeah. It's, I like people to stay under 90 milligrams yeah. deciliter. And then if they're going beyond that, that's usually when I go ahead and, and add it in or Usually right in the off-season phase, if now, now right when we start escalating PDs, 
I could probably go ahead and, and introduce it in then too. Yeah. Um, and still going off like blood glucose as well. Cause I'll have data from, from previous off seasons to kind of look at and lab data. So I know the guys or, or females that get into really high food amounts and have higher needs. Those are ones that I probably, Hey, right away, I'm, I'm going to be introducing this. If someone that I haven't worked with before, we're going to just monitor and go off lab work and, and see, it's not just like, Hey, just throw it in always. But um, it, it, for the most case, like starting at that 0.1 IU per kilogram body weight, moving into that push-up phase is, is definitely a, makes a lot of sense to do it around that time. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of people ask about doing it every day or training day versus non-training. Um, and I think an everyday deployment is, is, is fine. And I think that that's kind of where just the overall tracking is, is important, like taking one post a training day, taking one post a non-training day. It's kind of how I have my clients set up. But um, I, I do think just an initial deployment could just be training days. Um, but I think across the board would be fair too. Yeah, no, I, I agree there. Uh, it just keeps it consistent and uh, adherence. It makes it easy to remember just part of routine. But a lot of times we're not seeing such a vast calorie difference day to day. And usually output is a lot lower to compensate for that on your lower calorie days. So the surplus is still there. Um, yeah. So the insulin need would still be there. Um, I, I, like some questions around initiating it too. It's like, I've heard it. People ask like, do you, do you need to be using growth hormone to use insulin? And mm. you know, my answer to that is just, just consider these as, as separate drugs there. There are um, aspects where they have some synergies together with growth hormone, but basically the own insulin that you produce meets that need. So presenting insulin is just when you're getting compromised in your own production of insulin, um, that's, well, again, why we're deploying insulin, not to make some greater advantage by adding it in for growth hormone use. Now, there is this advantage to adding in for other reasons of prophylactic that we're talking about. Um, other question I got is, uh, will insulin therapy cause your pancreas to shut down? Um, I think the, the thought process is like when you're taking testosterone, right? You shut down your natural, would you shut down your natural production of insulin and have this hard time getting it back? And it's, it's quite the opposite. This doesn't work the same way. So um, yeah, you would take insulin. You wouldn't be producing as, as much uh, endogenously. Um, however, when you stop, you, you actually, since you have this kind of pancreatic rest that, that occurs, you actually still would be really efficient in producing your own, your own insulin. They, they see that in diabetics as well, too. Yeah, this is where you see that metabolic compensation in that paper, if you guys go read it. So and, yeah, that's a really good paper. And then another one would be, um, will it, using insulin cause insulin resistance to worsen? So people think if you, if you take insulin, I'm going to get insulin resistant. Yeah. And not necessarily would be my answer to that. Um, insulin doesn't cause insulin resistance per se. <laughs> Being in a state of high uh, chronic levels of insulin with inflammation can worsen insulin resistance. Yeah. Insulin itself uh, might not though. It, it's more of this chronic state of being, being elevated with high food, GH, and that high system inflammation oxidation. So uh, we use insulin therapy to treat diabetics. So if it was, it was if the drug caused 
di diabetes, we wouldn't be using it. So uh, think of it in that sense, and, and that would be that point. Oh, man. Giving um, insulin, uh, and it causes diabetes. <laughs> no. It's like, oh, man, it's so backwards. Oh, yeah, um, plan. A very anecdotal question I get is about, like, uh, gut growth, like like overall midsection growing with insulin oh. usage. Um, as far as like from an anecdotal perspective, seeing like these larger bodybuilders getting like bigger guts over time. What I would say from an anecdotal experience, that's probably more a problem from pushing food chronically, bad digestion, not managing that digestion in the off season um, and, and doing things to kind of wreck yourself because if you go back to some of the podcasts where we've talked about meals off plan, we can, yeah. we've talked about how that can reduce the response to food for two, three, four days. When we talk about like the insulin response to food. And so this is where we start to get that like GI dysregulation, like more than likely the, the root cause of some of this rather than just insulin itself. Yeah. Like the waist size thing, it's kind of multifactorial. Uh, yeah. Like we we're just talking about the problems we present as, as bodybuilders is kind of this metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, uh, increase of fat deposition around organs, the visceral fat increase. So it's like, how is someone shredded and still has a distended gut? Yeah, they have a lot of visceral fat around, around organs. What causes a lot of visceral fat gain? Exactly what we're talking about, insulin resistance. So Will, will insulin cause you to gain more fat around the midsection? No, insulin resistance will. And so if you're just trying to manage blood glucose with insulin and, and you keep pushing food, you keep pushing drugs, you're, you're not fixing the problem that's still in the background. Yes, you might have blood glucose, that's okay, but you still have insulin resistance. You just have a higher need now for, for insulin requirements. So that's where the problem's there. So Yes, have some management of utilizing insulin as a prophylactic, but we don't want to get to a phase where you're having to use it as a, a treatment for a disease state. 100%. Um, I think that brings us to a quick discussion of fast-acting deployment. Just like wait, wait, I, I, mm, I think I have... Another question? Yeah, no, I got, no, I got another thing that came to mind on, <laughs> on insulin... <laughs> So we talked about like when, when to use it, I guess, how long would that, uh, that we just talked about like when it's going too far. Well, there is a point of going too far. Um, usually like for, I don't take it up past that usually 20 units. Um, yeah, no, usage. Uh, I think if you were seeing like, you're not able to control blood glucose and it's still elevating beyond um, usually around that time point, there's a lot of things happening too. Uh, that's usually when hunger signaling is getting really poor. People feel like they're pushing food, food down. Um, you might have just more of this like kind of generalized swelling of inflammation that's occurring. And then, and also we're seeing kind of that poor partitioning happen. Uh, guys are just getting softer and we're not seeing as much out of the gym either. Um, and so that's usually the point of like, Hey, let's pull it all back. Let's de decrease food, decrease training volume decreasing drug load and with all that your insulin needs are going to be going down now moving into that initially you could keep some insulin present but then you could probably remove it because you overall decreased all the drivers that are increasing insulin needs and so that's when how long you would i use insulin for what's well, as long as you're able to tolerate the increases in stress of, of the off season but once you're seeing that detriment occur it's time to pull back 
and then kind of rinse and repeat that process. Don't just keep pushing because that's when you're going to run into those issues with getting real suboptimal with health markers and body composition markers. 100%. Yeah, I would agree with all of that because that's like I'm not taking it above that either. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely pulling them before that need. So um, fast acting. Yeah. Fast acting. Yeah. Hemologs, no vlogs, some of bodybuilders' favorite usage, right? So um, typically we see this used around training windows. So large influx of caloric intake around training. So we'll see a larger pre-workout meal, pretty, pretty sizable intra-workout carbohydrate usage. Um, and then post-workout, we'll also see usage with like larger post-workout meals, especially for like your larger bodybuilders. Um, and this is more just allowing us to return these postprandial blood glucose values to be ready for this influx of food again, right? Um, so across training, like using this pre-workout will be a, a very big benefit for overall uh, nutrient partitioning, especially within training. We had talked about kind of like the already the vessel expansion from uh, insulin use. Um, but then on the back end, when we look at it, a lot of where my usage is going to be is being considered using post-training where we have these large influx of calories and we need the response to be coming back down for the next meals, especially for people who are eating two and three meals at night before they're going, they're going to bed after training. Yeah, I think um, once you get to this point where you're having some amount of Atlantis present, I mean, arguably you could have some amount of Humalog present around, maybe for us, usually we have a lot of, a lot of food positioned around training. Um, and people argue because you're getting kind of really into this point of like, does nutrient timing matter? And why not just have your carbs evenly spread throughout the day? And that's an argument that that could be made. Um, however, I just still have a preference of, of moving a lot of food around training as from a digestive aspect. And also because I have this pretty long, that's probably my longest duration where I'm not actually able to sit down to eat a meal. So I, I put a lot of food around that because of that point. Um, also when food's getting high enough, you can just drink a lot of calories while you train. It's just another spot to be able to keep consuming food. Then that post-workout window, um, we could put more food around there. Usually you can tolerate quite a bit more and we could go with some even faster digesting carbohydrates because the need's already risen up so much. So you get to a point when food's high, it's like, how can I just fit in more? And there's just a lot of advantages around that training window from time duration and also nutrient uptake. So we have a lot positioned around, around there. You could offset some of those demands put on beta cells by using a fast acting. Um, and I see what, whether you want to use it pre or post, uh, you kind of look at the duration of action. It's uh, relatively fairly quick with a humalog and lasts for, I think it's four to four to five hours. Yeah. Um, so if you were to say you were to use it pre-workout, it would probably span that meal through training and trinkle into the post-workout period. If you were to use it post-workout, same thing needs to be in mind that within this five, probably I think it's three to five hours if, if that range is right. Does that sound? Sounds about peaks around one to two. So it's going to be around the three yeah. to five is going to be staying active. I think it's three to five or four to five, but either way, um, depending on where you have a lot of food position would probably be where I'd want to use it. Yeah. Um, do you need to use pre and post? No, I don't think so necessarily, uh, because it has this window that it operates within. 
if you're getting to where you need to have that much insulin demand, again, it's, it's go back to reevaluating, like, is it time to pull back? Um, but also I think it's the time of day you train too, uh, because if you have someone that's maybe they train and they only have one meal before going to bed, uh, just be considerate of that because adding insulin, that insulin is probably going to keep working way past that meal risk of, of hypoglycemia is a lot higher. Um, so that I, I would, that would be more in favor of doing it pre-workout. Uh, if you had someone that said they had a lot of meals post-training, uh, I think it might be more sense to have that with their post-workout period. Um, you know, starting points with Humalog, Novalog for diabetics. Sometimes they, they'll get around with one IUs per one IU per 10 gram of carbohydrate. Again, these are insulin resistant individuals. So you have to be considerate of that. Uh, it, the issue with pre-workout is a lot of times you're testing blood glucose after taking this and no one's testing blood glucose during training. <laughs> so, and really people are testing it post-workout. And so you, you, I, I still am conservative with it and go 50% of that. So it would be one IU per 20 grams of carbohydrate. So if I'm eating hundred grams of carbohydrate, you know, pre-workout five units of, of Humalog would, would be a starting point. And honestly, usually I start with three on people. <laughs> and I, I was about to say the same thing. Um, I was about to say the same thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll usually start kind of like that's that's some like framework of like structure around grams of carbs, but uh, three I use it could be a starting point. Then I might move it up from there. Yep, one hundred percent. I uh, I think that's a fairly good coverage of like main uses for insulin and just kind of where we're deploying it and, and some of the considerations around why we're considering it a prophylactic at this yeah. point. Um, I'm going to try to think of some other questions that come to mind. I mean, with, uh, in, in using insulin around training, like just, just be mindful of what hypoglycemia could feel like, because that is the main danger. I would always have on hand, uh, some type of fast, either it's, uh, like, candy or like you can get like glucose cubes or even you know something simple like a rice crispy treat or something like that while you're training um but just be aware like if you have you know, cold sweats you feel lightheaded um hunger irritability dizziness like those could all be signs of hypoglycemia like i would take like a glucometer along with you just to make sure I, those i know those describing those symptoms it's like man i already feel like that on leg days <laughs> fair enough like you know, um but that's why you'd want to have those things already on hand just in case yeah. um, we didn't cover prep deployment oh yeah, yeah. about that <laughs> so um i've seen yeah i've seen some some protocols using insulin, like one to two, I use fasting to bring down blood glucose further with the rationale that being with a low blood glucose level, you would have increased fatty acid oxidation during your cardio. And uh, I think this, I mean, give it that that amount of insulin is, is fairly low. I, I think still even in prep, um, now this is anecdotally, I have people go hypoglycemic without taking any insulin and even between meals and I've even done it. Uh, so, and the sensitivity to it is so high already. I, I think it's getting into looking a, a little bit simple at how we actually, 
how more complicated body fat metabolism is. Um, and that's, you know, big picture. If you're in a calorie deficit, like you're going to be, you're going to be losing body fat and don't just think that at this moment of time, uh, that you have, to, you're only going to be burning body fat for the rest of the day. You won't be, it still comes down to the big picture. And I think there's just a lot of other tools. If you're to be deploying in a fasted state, uh, to utilize for enhancing fatty acid metabolism with growth hormone, clin, caffeine, or any, any of these other aspects without really posing some danger with, with insulin. And uh, just you're always should be waking up in a state of, of low blood glucose if you've been on prep. Um, and so I, I don't see a further advantage to it. Yep. Same. I was going to say you're kind of playing with fire there, especially with like, I've just had too many clients go hypo during a prep to really, to really warrant that usage. Now I've had a couple situations where I'll keep a basil in the first couple of weeks, just because they're coming kind of starting a prep a little bit earlier and they're coming from a little bit of a higher food chronic state, like, like end of all season. And so that transition period, keep it in just for management until we start getting into deeper deficits, but that's about it for me. Yeah, I know. It's like, what about refeed days? Like, do you use insulin in those? I think if once you're to a point where you could benefit from a higher carbohydrate refeed day, uh, you've already are, already probably been a pretty low, a chronically low insulin state. So you're going to be pretty insulin sensitive. Like your your ability to produce insulin in that state is going to be completely sufficient. So are you going to have this added advantage to using exogenous insulin at that point? And say no, because um, on an insulin per insulin basis. So is your exogenous insulin going to have a greater advantage than your own production of insulin? And, and it's arguably no. And then the other aspect of that, like, well, will you have any, the same ability to produce insulin in that state? And arguably, yes, you have the ability to produce sufficient amount of insulin when you don't is more so an off season state when food is extremely high chronically. This is just an, an acute moment of higher insulin demand. Now, could you have some type of little small basal amount that you put in? Yes, but I, I can see like there's just there's no, no rationale for it. Like there's not a further advantage of it because you won't be chronically in that elevated state. Yeah, agreed. The other part would be on what about carving up on pre-show? I've seen insulin deployed in those settings. Loading situations, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's necessary. I think if you're at body, if you're ready, you're at body part, body fat levels, dear God, body fat levels that are so low and you've been riding that low insulin state so long. I, it's hard for me to warrant it, man. Uh, you're, you're just going to be so sensitive to food that it's, it's, I mean, I've, I've had people loading, go hypo after a meal, just that postprandial drop. Yeah. I, the, that, the first time I used insulin was, um, the 2015 uh, NPC USAs. Yeah, I was uh, I was fucking depleted. Like I had a really like <laughs> make, make middleweights was like, oh man, it it, it looked cachectic, man. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I was going to use insulin because like, man, you got to load load hard. And in the when I did use it, I if I recall, I think there was like five units of, of Humalog with. A meal, I can't remember how much carbohydrate it was, but um, shortly after, it was like uh, about two hours after the meal, I started getting all those symptoms of being hypoglycemic and needed to add in more food. And so there was an issue with that. 
Um, however, it just is a saying like, I'm already, you're already so insulin sensitive in that moment. Like your ability to produce insulin is going to be for one, your sensitivity to insulin is extremely high. So you're not going to have to produce a lot of it. And your ability to produce that amount is also going to be very, very sufficient. Cause even when I, um, like post-show, when I had my labs done, my like fasting serum insulin was like at a two which is like, ba like barely any insulin need. Um, like off season, normally I might cruise like six to eight. If you're over 10, that's kind of the issue. Like if you're over 20, you're like way like diabetics. This is a, a real problem. But, um, but in that state, like you're, you're insulin sensitive and you're not had in your ability to produce insulin is very sufficient. Now, if you're adding that insulin in and you're going hypo, now you're having to add in more food. So now you're having to feed the insulin. And if you're in a loading situation, that easily could get to this point where you're like, oops, I ate too much food. What happens then? You're, you're kind of like spilling over. And if you're not absolutely shredded to the bone, that could be, I, I think that could be an issue. Yep. Um, it, just, it just throws a lot of variables that might take you down a path of um, having to make some corrections that don't need to be there. And I'm, I'm yet to see someone that has like such a high carbohydrate demand carving up that they even justify having insulin. Um, I know there's some like protocols out there that do some really aggressive loads. That's uh, just not my style to do it because I think there's too much rolling of the dice within that. It's like load up to you spill way over, then you got to clean it up. And the digestive demand that's on that is, is problematic. Um, and then there's just this variability of like, are you going to time that amount of like cleaning up and getting uh, dropping some of that water off in time. So uh, I prefer all the, like that goes back to our peak week podcast that we did, but um, yeah, in summary around, around um, uh, that peak week period, I, I just don't see the, the need need for it. I know there's, I know there's protocols out there, but again, with how I run things um, I like a little bit more predictability in the look. 100%. Well, I think that covers most of the questions. I'm trying to think if there's any other questions that I get around insulin usage. Um, um, females, I, I mentioned a male female situation, but the same, all this same conversation uh, applies the same to females. Um, there's, there's, there's no difference around that. If, if you're posing the same, the same things that you would as a male, um, insulin can de be deployed within that same scenario yep 100 i don't nothing else yeah. that comes for me uh if you are a youtube listener you're welcome to leave comments and questions below that yeah. maybe luke and i did not answer or things that didn't come to mind we'd be happy to answer those for you yeah listen to you on other uh media streams Maybe go to YouTube and ask us a question. <laughs> uh, you can listen, watch us too. But anyway, that will cover it, guys. Um, we'll talk to you next time.